Thank you, new Grandpa Damon. Last week, I told you that we were going to take two weeks to examine what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, I also said that we're going to focus on different things in these two weeks. So if, if uh, you were not here last week, I'd really encourage you to listen to that on our YouTube channel just to make sure that you don't let the content of those verses pass by. The, the, what was in those, pa- in those verses of Scripture are just too important not to meditate on. So I would encourage you to do that. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the last half of this portion. And I want to begin by saying, years ago when I was uh, at Bryan College, I, uh, I taught the senior Bible majors, usually numbering 10 or 12 each year, I taught them their capstone course. And uh, the, uh, I taught them other courses, but the last senior course was when um, uh, they would uh, go through a year writing a thesis and also taking various exams, and at the end of their second semester, I would invite in seminary professors for public oral examinations, and they just loved that. Um, and, uh, but I would begin by uh, the, the first semester, the f- first of the first semester, they'd bring their tennis shoes to class, and we would uh, walk around the campus. And I would ask questions of them. I, the first one I would say, well, tell me the story of the Bible. You start. And they would begin in Genesis and continue to tell me the story of the Bible. Uh, what, what was left out here? Okay, there's, there's this. Let's add this in. And then we would go on through. And, and when they finished Genesis, they looked at me like, I'm done, right? No. Keep on going. And then I would, have, I would stop them and say, okay, now uh, you... Uh, you take over, continue the story. What book are we in? And so I would have them tell me that, and they would go on through the storyline of the Old Testament and then the storyline of the New Testament, and we would embed the prophets mostly in the divided kingdom period and the poets in the United Kingdom period, and we would embed the epistles and where they fit in the book of Acts or afterwards. And uh, it was just, you know, basically it was... Uh, a, the thing is... W- I think when you attend church all your life, and sometimes when you even go to seminary, you leave knowing some pretty good details about some of the puzzle pieces. But how the whole story fits together, the big picture of the Bible, uh, that's something that we don't often reflect upon. And the thing is, what I I want to do this morning is, uh, as John was leading us in the great story, God's big story, as we sang about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, I want to see where the Garden of Gethsemane fits into that great story because it's a critical part of God's big story. And I I want to back up a little bit because I want to explain why I think this is so important, especially for our students, especially for our young people. Um, As Christians, our worldview, how we think and live, should be shaped by God's big story. Not just the puzzle pieces that you hear on Sunday, but uh, because our students are hearing competing stories in schools, or they will hear them in the workplace or wherever you live, and you are hearing them now. And our culture offers those competing stories 
I mean, and the problem is when we absorb them uncritically, they affect our worldview. They affect how we think. They affect how we live. What is it in your life that you are absorbing uncritically instead of filtering it through the lens of God's big story? A biblical worldview. I mean, just, I think everybody would understand that the entertainment industry is, is a sort of exhibit A uh, for this kind of thing. The, uh, the stories that we watch for entertainment, Disney executives have been in the news lately, uh, have recently said that their agenda for identifying the kinds of characters that are going to be a part of their children's, children's entertainment, their agenda is indeed sexual fluidity. That's the, that's the agenda. They've said that. So, um, that's, so it's no surprise in the new Cinderella that came out a couple of years ago, the fairy godmother is a transgender male. Uh, not, a, not a surprise. Now, I'm not trying to stand up here and be grumpy, okay, about the good old days. That's not the point. My point is that culture shapes us. Other stories that are out there, competing narratives, shape us by what they present as normal and what we uncritically absorb into our worldview that conflicts with God's story. We don't use that as the filter. So whether or not you are, uh, no matter what story you are presented with, make sure that you're filtering them, filtering those things through the lens of a biblical worldview. Um, And I'm just not to get too much in the weeds, but uh, there are different, different ways uh, different stories that you're going to be told when, especially on this, again, for the young people, you will be told that the stories that you learned in church, the big story in the church of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, that that God's big story is just really outdated and inadequate for the world in, that you live in. It doesn't fit our world. Or you may be told, you know, there is no big story. There are only competing narratives. There are only, uh, there's no absolute truth there's no right and wrong everybody does what's true for them Uh, this fits into a worldview called postmodernism again okay let me give you an example of this how many of you have been on the walnut street walking bridge okay if you're on the walnut street walking bridge and you're looking we're on the bridge we're looking towards town okay you go across the bridge, there's a little ice cream place there. Everybody knows about that. And then there's, if you look to your left, down the bluff, what you see is the Hunter Museum. And if you look at the Hunter Museum, you'll see there are three different kinds of architecture that are a part of that museum. I pointed this out to you once when we talked about worldview. Uh, right in the middle is the classic uh, brick traditional architecture. To the far end is the ugly modernist (laughs) part. But the end closest to you, closest to the bridge, that's the postmodern part of the the art museum. It's, It's kind of interesting that, here's what I'm getting at. Despite the external weird looking form of that architecture, that close part, that postmodern section closest to the bridge, despite that, 
the architects of the postmodern wing still operate by mathematics. Gravity is still true for them, right? Even in constructing that wing, <laughs> the law of gravity is stubbornly, objectively true. The story that the Bible tells us is stubbornly, objectively true. It fits and it explains who we are, where we came from, our identity, our purpose, uh, our destiny, our relationship. So how does Gethsemane fit into that? And do we even know what that big story is? Okay, so four big movements, and then we're going to embed Gethsemane. The first movement, as John mentioned, is the movement of creation, including the creation of man in Genesis 1 and 2. We were created binary. Male and female, he created them. We were created in God's image. We have infinite value to him, which affects how we treat other people around us. And the world that we are to inhabit was created good. In fact, it was very good, which affects how we treat the world, animals, nature. We're not owners of those things. We're stewards under God of that which has been created. There's just so many worldview implications that flow from creation. Jesus consistently pointed back to what? To creation. That's where you find the norms for marriage, he said, for identity, for purpose. That's where Jesus pointed. But second, there is the fall in the garden. We have two gardens, don't we? The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. The choices of the first Adam and the last Adam are connected. In Eden, Adam basically said, God's word is an option alongside other options, and I'm going to pick what's true for me. And fell into sin. Suffering and death entered the world and affected everything, including natural disasters, tornadoes, pandemics, family conflict, relationships, sin entered the world Economics, everything is affected by it. No matter how many ways we try to fix these problems that happened as a result of the fall of sin and suffering, whether it's globally or individually, whether it's with, with, with communism or socialism or totalitarianism or democracy, doesn't matter. We can never get it fixed because we are the problem. We need help from the outside. God himself began that process of redemption, even in the garden, right from the fall. From that point on, the process of redemption was begun. That was the second movement. He covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve with what? With a sacrifice, a substitute, a skin of an animal. The word cover from the Hebrew word, later the word atone, same word. He atoned for their nakedness. God promised Eve also that she would have a descendant who, although he would suffer at the hands of Satan, he would defeat Satan's plan. In the Garden of Eden, God called that descendant the seed of the woman, which is bizarre. Women have eggs, men have seed. This means that there's some unusual birth, perhaps, that's ahead. Now, that's a thumbnail sketch of how Gethsemane 
I'm sorry. Um, that's a thumbnail sketch of how you move your notes one page too fast. <laughs> Adam, <laughs> see, this is such a fallen sermon. <laughs> At least the page didn't fall. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And now there is a need for the last Adam, who also will now suffer in the garden. God removed uh, his, uh, God, re God removed Adam and Eve from the garden and eventually began working not with all people, but with all people through one nation. In you, God promised Abraham, all nations of the world will be blessed. And we see now that that old promise of the seed of the woman was going to become was going to become identified with the coming Messiah, the Redeemer. What book in the Old Testament is the epitome of suffering? What book in the Old Testament do we identify with suffering? Job. Job cried out, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. There's future redemption, even future restoration. And then, God was promising redemption all along through the Old Testament, and it showed up. When God created, He was the Word. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. That's what we read over and over again in creation. And then we read in the New Testament as it opens, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He goes on to say, all things were made by Him. So here He is. He showed up. The sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Job's redeemer. The seed of the woman. The one who was going to become the sacrifice when Abraham was sacrificing Isaac and God provided a substitute. The sacrificial lamb of the entire Old Testament system. The one who was born of the virgin, Mary. The one who is called in the New Testament, the last Adam. And he was tempted, yet without sin, Hebrews tells us. I want you to think about, the, about Eden and Gethsemane. The first Adam failed the test of temptation in Eden and chose sin, which changed everything. Jesus, the last Adam, was victorious over temptation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he submitted to the will of the Father and paid the penalty for our sin, which also changes everything. Adam and his bride, who was taken out of Adam, joined together in sin. Jesus' bride, the church, bought with his body, born out of his blood, joined together in redemption. Adam's sin results in death for the race. Jesus' obedience results in life for the race. Adam got what he deserved. Jesus took on himself what he did not deserve. You see the contrast here. Adam's sin resulted in the very first use of the word curse in the Old Testament. Curse upon a fallen world. It involved the sweat of his brow, thorns and thistles, a hard life, and then death. Jesus experiences those same things. A crown of thorns. Sweat drops of blood. And death. In order to redeem creation from the curse. Romans 5, that John just showed up here. Therefore, as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, 
death spread to all mankind because all sinned. As through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. In the Garden of Eden, we have the first occurrence of the word curse as judgment on sin. And the Hebrew idea behind that word is to remove someone from God's protection, God's grace, and God's presence. To remove someone from God's protection, God's grace, God's presence. That's what, what curse means. Man on his own cannot remove the curse because we are the problem. But God can. Not long ago, I mentioned to you that the two last prophets of the Old Testament were Zechariah and Malachi. Zechariah constantly talks about, behold, days are coming, a day is coming, a day is coming. Listen to Zechariah 14. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be a light, and in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. People will live in Jerusalem. And this is what the book of Revelation calls the new Jerusalem. Listen, and there will no longer be a curse. And then we come to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Four chapters. The last chapter has six verses. The last verse has 33 words. And the last word of the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament is the word curse. The Old Testament closes with the prophecy of this and adds to it the prophecy of a coming forerunner. Malachi in that chapter speaks of, the, of actually the one that we know as John the Baptist who will bring a message that will relieve the curse. Then God himself shows up. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? So that the wages of sin, which is death, could be paid in the same way that we experience death. He could die for us. Romans 6, 20, uh, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus do about the, about the curse? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Do you, do you see, I hope I'm not losing you here, but this grand story, creation, fall, redemption, and now we await the last chapter, restoration. Romans 8.22 tells us that the whole creation groans and suffers, anticipating that restoration. The gospel restores all those things. Revelation 21, verse 5. Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 22, last chapter of the New Testament, ends this way. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it, and His bondservants will serve Him. So this brings us back to the garden. Not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said yes to the Father's will and chose to drink the cup for you and for me. Now that is the thumbnail sketch of how Gethsemane fits into the big story. 
Today's verses are different from last week. Last week, Jesus prayed, and we studied that, and it looks kind of like a formal studio portrait. Have you ever, you know, you've, have you seen pictures of Jesus praying in the garden? Have you seen those pictures? He's, he's, his elbows are on a big stone, and he's leaning, and there's this light coming, and his face is looking up, and there's this glow. You've seen those pictures? Yeah, that, that's not quite the way it was, was it? But even so, it, a lot of paintings throughout history have portrayed Jesus' agony in the garden. And some of them have Peter, James, and John there right beside him or behind him. There are not so many pictures that have been painted over the centuries of Peter's sword fight. Not a lot of pictures been painted of a young man running away naked. Uh, actually, today's verses, which, where, where G, when Jesus leaves the garden, are less like a formal portrait and more like a Keystone Cops movie. Its action is fast forward, and especially if you put all four Gospels together, uh, it, w there's just various levels of chaotic incompetency um, on display. The text itself is not hard. Pretty straightforward. It won't take us long to look through there. They leave the garden. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter takes a swipe at someone who's not a soldier. Good plan. And then everyone who was with Jesus runs away, including a young man who for some strange reason is just there. Uh, so I'm going to read through these verses, and I'm going to pause here and then make some observations. Uh, and and I would, I'd like for you to follow along with me, starting at verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. And we read other Gospels that there are soldiers that are a part of this, who were the, and the chief priests had a, uh, a, a, an entourage of soldiers, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And one of the things I like to do when I study is to ask questions of the passage, even when we don't know the answers, but it's interesting to think about them. Like, were the men with the swords and the clubs expecting resistance, kind of like a gang fight? You know, were they expecting the twelve and Jesus to go at it with them? Um, I, I don't know. Um, was it known, maybe by Judas, that Peter was packing heat? He carried a sword. Did the others have swords? They just keep them and kept them in their sheaths. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's interesting to think about that. Uh, we're not sure, but uh, if you'll give us 44, now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him, lead him away under guard. Well, wait a minute, Gary, wasn't Judas, wasn't Jesus well known? Yes, but remember, it's the middle of the night. It's dark, and not everybody did know Jesus, especially the uh, temple guard necessarily. Jesus had eluded a mob before, and Judas was going to make sure that Jesus did not escape. And have you ever wondered what this says about Judas, that he would make sure that Jesus had no avenue of escape? Verse 45, after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. It's kind of a, the normal cultural greeting, a kiss on both cheeks um, for the day. By the way, the most literal application of Proverbs 27 is found right here. 
that you will ever see. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 46, they laid hands on him, they seized him. And friends, at this point, Judas's work is done. He's gone. The rest of his story is told elsewhere. But now, within the account of Jesus' arrest, there are these two little micro-stories that make you wonder. And in the first one, Peter misses the mark <laughs> again. And in the other, we have the first streaker in the New Testament. Verse 47, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. This detail is, is recorded in all four Gospels. Isn't it interesting? Of all the things that are recorded, that are, go back and forth with the Gospels, this one is in all four of them. But it's fascinating to see how the four, four accounts supplement each other. Uh, in Matthew and Mark, it simply says, one of the disciples struck the slave uh, of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's what we read here. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus rebuked that disciple. Put your sword back into its place. Those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. John, who I take to be Peter's best friend, you see Peter and John doing things together about a dozen times or so in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Uh, John is the only Gospel writer who tells us, yeah, it was Peter uh, who missed. Two things here. First of all, you'll notice that Peter did not go after one of the soldiers. He went after the high priest's slave. And second, I will promise you, Peter was not aiming for the ear. Right? Uh, he was a fisherman, definitely not a soldier. John's family actually knew the high priest and had access to the trial of Jesus later. So it makes sense that John is the one who tells us that the slave's name was Malchus, because John would have known that. Malchus. Luke, what was Luke's occupation? Luke the doctor. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Is the only one who tells us that Jesus healed <laughs> Malchus' ear. Only he uses the, one, the word for ear that's a diminutive that may indicate or, yeah, may indicate that, that uh, um, Peter sliced off part of it, not the whole thing, not sure. So Luke tells us that. Luke also tells us that Jesus said to everybody, stop, no more of this. It's kind of that, you know, that freeze frame moment where everybody stops. And everybody's sword is out, perhaps, the, the, well, the, 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 certainly the mob, but Jesus brings the violence to a halt with this rebuke. Well, that's the, that's, that's the picture of it. And there, there's more to it. Like I said, it's, it's kind of Keystone Cops stuff. But by the way, so, some early church writings inform us that Malchus became a follower of Jesus later. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, this is to the legalized lynch party, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber as if i were a criminal every day i was with you in the temple teaching you did not seize me but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures i, I love that comment because jesus exposes their fear and their paranoia because they're coming after him they had many opportunities to to arrest him but they're coming after him in the middle of the night with the least amount of personal risk to, to them 
and, uh, and being able to stir up the crowds with an arrest that may have gone wrong. Probably, uh, probably most of them, after hearing Jesus say this and after watching what happened, are rather happy that they weren't standing next to Peter. Now, this fulfilled the scriptures. How? Isaiah 53, 12 says, the Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus says, you're coming to me like a criminal, like a robber. We read that in, that, uh, I'm sorry, we read in Isaiah 53, verse 12, he will be numbered with the transgressors. And then they crucified him with two robbers. Verse 50 tells us, they all left him and fled. Everybody abandoned Jesus, including a young man whose weird story is recorded in the last two verses that, you know, you read that and you say, what? 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 Okay. Verse 51. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. You have no idea how tempted I was to have the sermon title be Naked and Afraid. But I thought, eh, Betsy wouldn't like it. <laughs> um, you know how most Bibles have cross-references? Well, they'll, they'll, okay, if you, if you look at the reference on this verse, it'll take you to a parallel idea or a parallel passage. If you look at verses 51 and 52, you probably got nothing. So, Unlike the story about Peter and the sword, which is recorded in all four Gospels, this is found nowhere else. There's no fulfillment of prophecy that's claimed here. Why is it here? We're not really sure. And, and when you read all the interpretive meanderings of scholarly tomes as they pretzel their way through this, uh, there's a lot of fun to be had. But the text itself is really pretty clear. The Greek word, for naked, literally means naked, as in buck. Uh, that's in the Greek, yeah. There's a word for buck. No, I didn't. Um, so this young man was just naked and ran away. So two big questions. Number one, who was he? Number two, why is the story here? How does it fit? in the narrative, in Mark's gospel. Well, uh, first of all, who was the young man? I'm going to assume with the vast majority of, of commentators that this was actually Mark himself. Uh, because the story is found only here, not in Matthew or Luke or John. It's unique to Mark. Why no name given? Why doesn't Mark identify himself? Well, that's the same with Matthew and John. That's the way the gospel writers wrote. Uh, and, and of course, Luke was not a part of the story, he, he was saved later. So unless it's connected with Mark himself, it makes no sense. But if it is Mark, if it is Mark, it makes perfect sense. And I'm going to explain why in a moment. But I do believe that we have a cameo, if that's the right word for what this is, of Mark himself. How does it fit? This is the second question. How does it fit in Mark's gospel? And here's a possible reconstruction. This was, many, many have, uh, this is not original with me. In fact, the first time I read it was in a, a book by Alfred Edersheim, um, uh, who was the head of the uh, Department of Biblical Studies at Oxford University. He wrote about 100 years ago. And uh, there are many others who have suggested this too, but it's a very 
common and very defensible interpretation. Here it is. The upper room where the Last Supper took place, where the disciples were, and where later uh, Pentecost may have happened, and certainly where when the angel released Peter from jail in Acts chapter 12, uh, that was connected with the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. That's where Peter went after he was released from prison. So that's where uh, most people think the upper room took place. Now, if that is the case, do you remember the servant girl, Rhoda, who came out when Peter was uh, at the door and they thought uh, that... Uh, um, uh, that it was Peter's ghost. Remember that whole story? It was a servant girl, not at the door, but at the gate. It was, it was a, think of a compound of, of a, uh, you know, several buildings there, that kind of thing possibly. So here's, that was the place where Mark grew up. Judas left the upper room to betray Jesus. Jesus and the rest of the disciples went to Gethsemane. Meanwhile, Judas returns. Jesus is gone. But he returns with this mob to this large house, rouses the servants at the gate, and after learning that Jesus is gone, Judas goes to Gethsemane because he knows that was Jesus' favorite place. John Mark wakes up because it's late, right? Remember the disciples couldn't keep their eyes open? John Mark wakes up and he hears the commotion and he gets out of bed grabbing his sheet because the word for uh, the word for sheet actually can mean outer tunic or bed sheet. It had both meanings, and, and the bed sheet would fit with this late night scenario. So he just got this sheet over him, and that's it. But he hears what's happening, and he goes, perhaps, to warn Jesus. Once he gets close enough, he sees what's going on. He doesn't go back for more clothes. He runs to get Jesus to warn him, perhaps. That may have been, or may have just been watching to see what was going to happen, to see the action. But when he got there, it was too late. The soldiers saw him, they grabbed him, and he ran away. Now, this is speculation, but it would explain what he's doing here, why he had the sheet or outer tunic only, why he runs away naked, and why this is even mentioned at all. Whatever this looked like, I believe Mark is saying, I too was there. I too am an eyewitness. I too ran away. And Jesus is absolutely forsaken by everybody. Now, there's an epilogue to Mark's story that's quite wonderful to see because Mark blew it more than once. But Mark was restored every time. Uh, there is a pattern that we see in these last this last portion of, of uh, uh, the life of Jesus. And that is that those who are supposed to be the heroes of the faith don't measure up. We are all broken. We all blow it. And Christian apologists have long noted that if the first century disciples had been creating a new religion of their own, the disciples would never have been exposed as cowards. John Mark would have never... Uh, join them in running away. The first leader of the Christian church, uh, Peter, would never have denied Christ. The agony of Jesus in the garden would never have been written, and Peter would have had better aim 
The Gospels have this ring of truth. They're not crafted to create a religion in which you admire the first Christians. There's this pattern. Peter runs away. Soon he's going to deny Jesus. Jesus forgives and restores. John Mark deserts. Actually, twice. There's another one. And Jesus restores. After creation and fall, there is redemption and restoration. You and I are a part of God's great story. And we are now, chronologically, in this period called redemption. And we await the final restoration. Where do you fit in God's story of redemption? Where, what is your story? As we mentioned, the Bible says all have sinned. That refers to a past event. That's the Garden of Eden. All have sinned in Eden. And are falling short. That's a present tense. That's your sin and my sin on a daily basis. That's our Gethsemane. All of us have sinned in Adam and are falling short of the glory of God. We can never bridge the gap between a holy God and ourselves. So God took the initiative. In the garden, Jesus said yes to the Father's will. And as I said last week, we are the ones who filled the cup of sin for him to drink. Jesus drank our cup on the cross. And the reason why he did that is so that you don't have to, so that I don't have to. Of course, you can refuse Jesus' payment for your sins. You can demand to drink your own cup. But Jesus paved the way so that you don't have to because he died in your place. That's God's big story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And one day, when the curse is finally lifted, he will wipe away all tears from their eyes. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I am also fully known. Lord, I thank you for this part of Scripture. I thank you for the grand story in which we fit. And I ask, Lord, that you would grant us the grace to see the world in which we live with your eyes, to look at the things that we encounter through the lens of a biblical worldview, to see your story and to fit into that rather than to have uh, ourselves conform to the world's story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.